I think a couple more people may be on their way. Um, but I'm glad to start without it. And I thought we could start with a go round, and if folks could say, um, like, what you hope to get out of today, and particularly whether you want to move toward there's sort of two spectrums. One is toward theoretical stuff about conflict, and one is toward just like practical shit you can do. And the other is toward having a group discussion or me giving like giving as much information as I can get quickly. Um, I won't do that very much because I prefer to, for people to talk. But so kind of where you are on those, and then um, also so any experience that you've had with conflict resolution stuff, and then something you've lost to conflict in your life. So that could be a friendship, it could be a particular movement you were a part of, whatever. Um, it could be a pet, you know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be something large scale. So what you want today, what you've done in this kind of stuff before, and something you've lost, and your name. So I'm going to start. I'll start. <laughs> um, I'm Matthew, and uh with the New York Metro Alliance of Anarchists, and I'm, I'm actually here to, to, I guess I'm actually more interested in the, in the practical, the practicalities, practical methodologies for, for resolving conflicts. I'm, I'm sort of non-confrontational by nature. So, um, so yeah, I tend to, I tend to avoid, avoid conflicts as much as possible, but, you know, they're inevitable, and, 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 you know, to, to kind of have a, a little toolbox of, of elegant ways to resolve them would be would be really useful, I think. Oh, I can't I can't really recall anything right now about what I lost, but if I if I think of something, I'll I'll throw it out there. Um, I'm Alana, also a Nine Um, I also would like to talk about practical ways of. Um, doing conflict resolution, um, my background in it, besides talking to you, <laughs> uh, not much except for being a, a camp counselor and having to deal with that. And something I've lost, conflict, mm, I don't know, like Matthew, I'm really non-confrontational unless I like lose my cool completely and then nothing gets resolved, so I can't think of anything. Do I do have friendships that you no longer have that you want to have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A long time ago, though, that like that was more like teenage stuff, though. You know, like I mean, I can't really think of anything from when I when I had reached a certain point of maturity. That... <laughs> hey, what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I'm Eric, and I'm interested because uh, it's like. Like conflict resolution is like one of the things I think a lot about because it seems like that's like the number one question of like, well, like what are you what are you gonna do without prisons? Like, mm -hmm. so yeah, I've been interested in one. I have no background at all in it, and I don't know. I used to be uh, like a year and a half ago. I used to be friends with my roommate, but I now completely hate her. And I always will. <laughs> I suppose in both theory and practicality, um, I think that I guess through learning theories you can 
I mean, it's nice to hear other people's version of what practicality is, but if you hear theories, I guess you can kind of develop your own too, which I'm also interested in doing. Um, I guess in my own experience, I'm not a confrontational person per se, but I am very, I speak kind of impulsively, and a lot of people take it as like, you know, you're being confrontational, and I'm not. I try to bring things to a head so I can get rid of them, but it's seen as confrontational, kind of want I guess through a theory, find my own practicality for that, but yeah. My name's Jonathan, I live in Baltimore right now. Um, I guess my experience is just being in different sorts of collectives or community organizations and just <clears throat> trying to figure out how to deal with conflict in that, not through any necessarily formal way that I've done so far or anything. Um, I guess all the things you said sound good to me, but I agree with Leah that like, yeah, theory should be focused on like, I think that's not what you said. That's what I'm saying. Theory, yeah, I'm interested in theory that's like focused on, so how do you do something with this? Not just like abstract. What are people gonna do in a hundred years? You know, but like, what can we do now? Yeah. Tell me your name again. My name's Jonathan. Um, I'm Adam. Uh, interested in, from a lot of different angles, um, interested in um, human relationships, and I like to see people get along with each other. I don't like to see people fight and suffer. Um, so I was a psych major in college, and um, that was a few years ago. Um, I've had a few years, you know, to just, you know, get out since then. And now I've, I've had a recent reinvigoration because I'm actually thinking about maybe going back to grad school, become a therapist, um, you know, it's sort of, I think, the best way I can, you know, make a difference with people one-on-one -on -one in relationships. Um, so, you know, I just like to get different approaches of how people relate to each other. I also live at a commune, so that's focused, they focus a lot on conflict resolution. Um, and I started dating my girlfriend recently, and you know, that's conflicts come up <laughs> every day. I mean, little, little things. And um, I mean, I feel like in some ways our relationship is very kind of um, non-traditional. And I try to, I mean, I don't know if I, I, I'm very focused on, I mean, because coming into it, you know, I'm anti-authoritarian and, you know, try to equality, share power and everything. So, yeah, I mean, um, just with, with that and everything here to try to, I don't know, just get ideas. This seems like everything. So, thanks for doing it. Today and ex any experience we've had in conflict, conflict. or resolution. Well, I'm John. Um, yeah, so I don't. I didn't even know what the session was. I'm just getting out of work like two hours ago. I work okay. nights and mm. I'm going to the book fair. So, um, um, conflict. Um, I think I've. I think I've experienced a lot of uh, conflict, um, but to the extent, um, um, not very, you know, creative or um, or uh, non-authoritarian resolutions, though mediation. But um, yeah, but just be interested to hear what's going on. I'm Danielle, and I'm part of. New York Metro Alliance of Anarchists and Rock Dev and 
the mm. newly named Signals Collective, which does consensus and facilitation trainings, um, <coughs> and also part of a collective that's looking to buy some land at stake to create a radical retreat and organizing center. Um, but last week made agreements about how we're going to resolve our conflicts when they arise, which is rocks my world. Um, my background is I've done a lot of different types of mediation, and I can talk about some of the differences between those. Um, I negotiated a gang truce when I was in Atlanta. I've done a fair amount of circle processes as well, which if we talk about one process is the one I'll probably say something about today. Um, and have dealt with conflicts ranging from like shit in my own life with people I know to community disputes of a couple hundred people. So different ranges. And I'm interested particularly in in thinking about which things should happen differently for different scales and then which things are maybe through lines that should happen no matter what the scale of the conflict and how the small ones and the large ones relate to each other. Um, so, and one of the things too for me that it makes me very passionate about this is every once in a while I was talking to Matthew about this, I imagine what our world would look like if every movement we'd ever lost to internal conflict was still thriving. And my sense is we would be done, you know? Like we'd be chilling on a free and liberated beach somewhere. Um, like if you really think historically of all of the power that's been lost to shit, not just things that come externally, but from within. Um, so to my mind, we are at such an urgent moment for this planet that our ability to do this seems to me to be a matter of survival. Um, also for all the talk of smashing the state, if we can't handle our own shit, A, we're not gonna be okay after we smash it, but B, we never really will, because you don't destroy things that you're dependent on. You know, like there's a natural animal thing that happens where you won't get rid of something that you need to survive. And so, to my mind, it's really essential in, in moving toward a moment where we're less dependent on status structures, but also in thinking about what we do after that moment. Um, and so that's part of the whole creating a new world in the shell of the old. This, to me, is one of the most important aspects of it. Um, so. The, there's kind of a thing that people in conflict resolution communities really love, which is that the Chinese character for conflict, do any of you know this? It's the same as the character for crisis, and it's a combination of the characters for danger and opportunity, um, which I think is really important. Partly because it being a synonym to crisis means something, because a crisis is something that you deal with. You know, like you attend to it, whereas a conflict, we're like, you know, like absolutely evade it as much as possible. Um, but also that sense of, of the balance of those two things seems to me really important because we're very aware of how it's dangerous. Um, so if you could take a minute and talk to me, one, two, three, you can talk to me, um, in your pairs and think of an opportunity you've had in your life. So it can be anything. It can be like, oh, I got to go on a canoe trip or I got to go to magical Disney World. And then think of dangers that were associated with that opportunity. So canoe trip, oh, I risked bashing my head open on a rock. In Disney World, I wished, you know, I risked being indoctrinated into something destructive to me and my generation, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it can be something really small, like I had the opportunity to go to the corner and get a sandwich. It doesn't have to be. Or it can be something that you really think of as a powerful opportunity in your life. Um, so maybe you two and you two and you two and us two. Um, I just share that with each other quickly, both of this as an opportunity to create a depth of connection that I don't know really any other way to create except coming through that. And I think to my mind that's one of the things that's most serious about how the court systems are structured now and how conflict is managed, which is that if conflict has this 
finding opportunity, right? Like it's got some force in it that could bring you closer to somebody. And it brings you in a strong connection, even if that's hate. Even if it's like, I'm gonna remember you forever because of how much I hate you. You know, like someone becomes more integral to you than they were before, no matter whether it's positive or negative, right? Like it's got this coup. And what happens is that we're told in like serious and violent conflict in particular that that's between us and the state, right? So my relationship as a victim is with the district attorney and my investment is in him being as strong as he can be so that I'm as safe as I can be, right? And then the offender's relationship is with a defense attorney and then usually with a prison, which is about as binding a relationship as you can get, right? So what happens is all this transformative energy and all this binding energy gets, gets hijacked and transferred into something that strongly connects us to the state over and over and over again. And so to my mind, that's one of the greatest thefts that the state ever commits against us. Because those are the things that I believe can, first of all, connect us to each other, but can also create a sufficient trust that we're willing to move forward together. Like that we believe we can resolve our own shit. And if we believe that, then we believe we can do virtually anything. Um, and like the number of people who are card-carrying anarchists and will still sometimes call the cops because they're at a loss, you know? And so thinking about that as being really essential and as something that is consistently taken away from us over and over and over again and that we're trained in that way from really early on. And so some, some of this is about breaking that training as often as we can so that that transformative energy. And so to my mind, a lot of our connection with the state comes through that. Like it comes through the hijacking or the theft of that specific energy. <clears throat> and so to think about breaking that things for me is about kind of taking a step back from that dependence. Um, and weaning ourselves off of it. And in doing that for other people, also interrupting all those moments of hijack, right? Being like, actually, mm, that's mine. Like, I've been both the victim and the offender in serious violent crimes. Um, and so, like, I have a long juvenile record and a long, you know, history of what happens if you're a low-income woman in the world. Um, and at all of those, like, I didn't see no DA on the corner when any of that shit was going down. Like, it's not between me and and some man in a suit ever, you know? And so that interruption doesn't make sense. And that's also part of why you see, like, if I go to court if, as a defendant, I can say anything at all. And my aim is to get over. Like, my aim is to not go to jail. Like, I have zero investment in saying anything true or real or healing. I'm not going to be like, you know what? It's really important to me that you know that I know what I did to you was fucked up because that's 10 years upstate for my ass. You know, it's not worth it. And I don't owe anything to that judge. What the fuck do I owe a judge? What am I gonna owe you? Oh yeah, you're on there, I did, did, did. Who are you? You know, I probably don't even know your name. And you certainly didn't, I don't owe you a thing. And I think people do have a strong sense of being obligated in some way to people who they've harmed. Mm -hmm. And don't have a strong sense of being obligated to people who they haven't harmed. So it creates this cycle where People who cause harm are trying to get out of it, are trying to get out of whatever consequence, which is very reasonable and very right and very human, and where victims are trying to see them see consequences, even if they have no say in what those are, even if they have no say in the outcome, even if it doesn't directly benefit them in any way or make them safer in any way or help their healing in any way. That's still because they've been told the only way you're going to heal is if he goes away. And so they're like, God, I really want to heal. I hope he goes away. And, you're like, and then he goes away and they're not healed. If you look at survivors of sexual assault <clears throat> 10 years after the assault and you compare women whose, the survivors only with women, women whose assailants were caught and prosecuted and incarcerated and women whose assailants were either not caught or not prosecuted or not incarcerated, you know, so they didn't make it all the way. And you look at their mental health, the women for, whose assailants were put away 
do far, far worse in terms of their experience of trauma, the residual symptoms, the way it continues to impact their life. And some of that is because they're told this shit's going to work it out for you. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. Whereas women in this other situation recognize that the thing they were told was going to work it out is the absence of they find something else, just out of the necessity of surviving it. Um, and so I think some of it that's really important is thinking in terms of battling a prison industrial complex, is thinking about, obviously we know why that's bad for an offender, because going to jail sucks. Like, that's not complicated. But recognizing that it's equally damaging and destructive to the victims of serious and violent shit, I think is really important for us to think about carving a way going forward that's more equitable. So it's not just about people going to jail so they don't go, people not going to jail because it sucks for them, it's about the fact that that is harmful to communities and to the people who were originally harmed um, and disempowering. Um, so what I would love to do is do a quick um, rundown of some of the shifts that I see um, in moving from something that's oriented around a criminal system to something that's differently oriented. Um, and I think that some of these even apply to how we handle shit in our personal lives, like how we handle conflict as it arises. Um, some of these are in this really awesome book called Peacemaking Circles from Crime to Community, which is somewhere in between like a theoretical book and a practical guide to circles. And it's really, if you love these kinds of things, this is really a brilliant book. Um, and so she's talking specifically about circle processes, and we can talk about that in a little more detail if you want to later. Um, but some of the main shifts that I think happen when you make this move, one is a shift from coercion to healing, right? So from making people do something and forcing them to, <coughs> relying on that force, to an orientation around healing everybody involved. One of the things that's interesting about circles is that they emerge naturally anywhere where people don't have a way of forcing a minority of people or an individual to do something. You know, so you see consensus process in places where people can't force 49% of people to do anything. And so they have to reach consensus, not because they like it ideologically or because that's in their bylaws, but because if they don't, those 49% of people aren't going to do it because they're free. And so if you look at places where there aren't either a group of people or a way individuals can force other people to do something, you see processes like this evolve because you don't have a mechanism of coercion. Um, and so to my mind, those communities are really important teachers for us. Um, it's why I'm really interested in a lot of what's happening in the autonomous communities in Chiapas with the Zapatistas. Just like the question of like, okay, if you don't have prisons or police and things go wrong, what happens next? You know, and it's a, to my, I think it's a really, really important question for us to be asking. The next shift is from a focus on an individual responsibility or accountability to individual and collective responsibility. So that means understanding that harm doesn't come on nothing. It's not like someone woke up one morning evil and it's like, oh, today I'm going to be evil. You know, so recognizing the way our communities create the situations that cause people to cause harm. If you talk to violent people who are doing time for violent offenses in prisons, Virtually 100% are survivors of violence. Like, that's just real. Virtually all people who commit childhood sexual abuse are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Like, nine out of 10. You know, so we're not talking about harm that just kind of arises out of some seed of evil in someone's soul or whatever it is, you know, or some will that day or some arbitrary thing. Like, we're talking about cycles. And so it's about recognizing that. Um, the next shift is from a primary reliance on the state to self-reliance within the community, which we sort of talked about, which is being able to work things out without an oppressive and coercive structure that has guns. Um, 
Next is going from the idea of justice is getting even to justice is getting well, right? And what that means in terms of what you would look for in an outcome, right? So that means, like, if you think about, say you're on a hike trip and you're way up in a mountain and you're with one other person and that person, like I, Matthew and I are walking and I think it would be funny to trip him and I trip him and he breaks his leg, right? I can do two things for him at that stage. One, I can bind the wound and leave him my water and run to go get help. Or two, I can break my own leg, <laughs> right? Those are, I mean, and that, the second option is like, yo, that was dead wrong of me, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me do something equal and opposite to it to make it up. Mm -hmm. My sense is not out of compassion for me or understanding of the harm I may have suffered or our fellow humanity or any of that, out of very simple self-interest, I don't imagine Matthew would choose my leg breaking. Even if he's sort of like, I wish you did have a broken leg. But he would send me down the mountain and take my water. I assume. You know, people do some crazy things. But so it's about really thinking about, so if you think about the difference, like one of those is getting even, like it's great to be like, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna break my leg right now. And then getting well is something that's about, that's not just about generosity, it's about self-interest for the person who's harmed. And I think that's a really, really important shift in terms of how we think about why we would do something other than something oppressive. Um, the next is from disruption to continuity. So from something that causes a break in relationships. So that means both understanding how the past impacts the future, things like cycles and patterns, but also an investment in going forward together. Um, that's also connected to the will to isolate people who commit conflict instead of to engage them more fully, um, which is the next one, which is the move from an instinct toward banishment Toward, to an instinct toward reintegration, right? So like prisons were like, whoo, someone's bad, send them away. There ain't no such thing as a way. You know, like a way is somewhere else and there are other people there who will experience harm too. Um, so like if you wanna say send them upstate or you like send them to a place with other people who have committed harm so that they can all experience degradation and dehumanization and alienation, I'd be like, you know what, that's okay because at least you're being honest about what we're talking about. It's putting somebody away, you're like, there's no, it's a, this sort of like not in my backyard style of conflict, right? Like we want people who are harmful to be gone, but they're not gone, they're somewhere else. And so thinking about reintegrating them and bringing them back. And we do that a lot in our communities. Like I've been in a lot of collectives and progressive communities that someone acts wrong and we send them out, which is cool for us and really irresponsible to anybody else in the world where we're sending them. Um, the next is from passivity to participation. So from getting something done for you to participating in the outcome. Connected to that is from representation to direct involvement. So from lawyers and judges to the people directly impacted by something having a say in what happens in the outcome of it. Um, that's connected to move away from professionalism too. Like the idea that there are people who know how to do this and that they're the ones who have to and that nobody else can. Um, and then the last is from obedience to inclusion. So that's the difference between rules and agreements. You know, so if you're like ever, was talking about circle processes with someone who had tried one with a group of kids, and she was like, none of them would follow the rule to stay silent when someone else was talking. And you're like, it's not a rule, it's an agreement. They don't have to stay silent. They know that, they can talk, they'll show you. You know, like, straight up will prove it to you easily. If it's an agreement, then they're entering that from a place of power. You know, so they're saying, I, the reason you enter agreement is because you could do the alternative. So I wouldn't be like, okay, I need everybody today to make an agreement with me not to fly. Because my understanding is probably that you can't. So we don't really need to say that. And so when you ask someone, you invite someone to make an agreement, you're acknowledging their power to do otherwise. 
and allowing them to make an active and empowered choice to do something different with that power. Um, so trying to shift that. But in the instance with, with, the, with the kids who yeah. would not stop talking, is that just a matter of presentation, how you present the, the concepts? I think that's a lot of it. And it's also about like being willing to, deciding which of your agreements are going to be essential for the outcome and which ones aren't. Like every process I'm a part of has different ground rules. Like there are some that are uniform throughout all of them because I think they're really important. The only way we agree to it is if I can articulate why I think they're important enough that other people think it's a good idea. Um, so I won't ever engage in a mediation where someone is obeying a rule that, I mean, I'll do it if someone's giving it the benefit of the doubt. They're like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work, but I'll try it. That's fine, because that's a tentative agreement. Um, but I won't be like, you're not allowed to talk right now. Um, you agreed not to talk right now. It's really different. Um, it's the same way if somebody says don't or please don't to you. Like if someone's like, don't sit there. You're like, I'm gonna sit my house down. And if they're like, could you please not sit here because somebody else takes the seat? You're not gonna sit there. And you're like, yeah, okay, cool, no problem. Because they recognize that you could and because they give you a reason, because they acknowledge something of your autonomy as a person. Um, so a lot of it is about approach. Um, do people have thoughts about any of those or questions about any of those, the shifts? Um, I'm in a little piece of paper that was going to be big. <laughs> I wonder if you can see that far here. <laughs> Younger and stronger than I am. I have a question. I don't know if it's directly related, but <clears throat> I wonder about how to, like, the gap between, okay, the event happening mm -hmm. and then sitting down to discuss, but how you get the people together. How you get someone to even be like, all right, fine, I'll talk to you about what I did to you. You know, that kind of middle ground accountability. That seems like the hardest to me. Really, that's really right. And one of the things that I think we don't do enough of that I wish we did more of is having prior agreements about how we're gonna resolve conflicts. You know, so like a bad time to learn first aid is when someone just fell off a mountain. You know, like that's a bad time to be like, you know what, I really want to educate myself about first aid. Like, what do you do if someone falls off a mountain? What should you do for head wounds? And like, start to investigate it. Like, that's a really poor time. Because in those moments of crisis, you're not, that's not the best time to figure out structures or strategies. Um, so I think some of that is about prior agreements. So saying like, for instance, this collective that I'm a part of, that we're like, okay, we're going to use circle processes. And we all, in this collective, commit that we, if we are asked to be in a circle process, we'll go. Um, and we say that in a time of like good intention and togetherness and love. But it means that like when it happens, we've already said we would do it. And we have some sense of responsibility to everyone in that collective, not just the person with whom we're in conflict. And we've acknowledged before that we regard this process as probably being fair and useful. And so we're more likely to agree to go. Whereas if the time comes up and you're like, hey, you pissed me off, you want to come to a circle? They're like, Psh, no. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of it is about prior agreements, which we virtually never do. You know, like we don't. So for instance, one of the things like all the collective members in this collective will agree to engage in this conflict resolution process if, if they're asked. Um, so I think that's really, really important um, because you're right, it's really hard. The other thing is that if you have a neutral like facilitator or mediator, 
that should be the person who's reaching out to get people to the table as, a per as opposed to the person who's immediately involved. And that should also be the person who's doing things like securing space and scheduling. Because that's a lot of how people avoid it. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not free Wednesday. And you're like, well, when are you free? And they're like, well, this week is really bad. And then you hate each other. You know, and you're like, shh, fine, never mind then. And it's possible that the week is really bad. It's possible that it's not. So as much as those kinds of responsibilities can be done by somebody else, for really heated conflicts is really useful. And if you notice conflict about just like organizational details, and anybody can do that. It doesn't have to be like a seasoned mediator because it's anyone who can like set up a meeting. You can be like, are you free Wednesday? No? Oh, how about Thursday? Oh, okay. And then call someone else and be like, are you free Thursday? Like it's not a high level skill that's required. Like it's, and you can get someone else to do that. And I think that helps too because a lot of, because people avoid it. Like people don't want to do it. Like they're afraid of what's going to happen because they haven't done it before. Um, so I think that that's a huge, a huge part of it. Um, it also seems like a, in that model that you, you would need someone who's both invested enough in the outcome of the conflict, um, periphery enough as to remain a neutral mediator slash arbitrator. Right. Um, What's awesome is if you're in community with people, there's usually just like dozens of those people around. You know, like if you actually are in communities that are somewhat self-governing or at least have shared commitments. There's always a ton of people who have some investment in things being worked out and aren't directly a part of it. Um, and those people get in our court system, like you're nobody. Like if you love both the people involved and you really care about the outcome and it directly affects your life, no, <laughs> you don't got a single place. And even if you look at how a courtroom is structured where like the people who are most invested don't face each other. They face a usually white man in a robe on high with in God we trust over his head who tells them if they've been good or bad. Like it's a very, very theological structure, like in particularly a Judeo-Christian theological structure with white guy in robes on high telling you if you've been good or bad and where you should go accordingly. Um, and so even things like a circle, and what's exciting about a circle, maybe I'll say just a couple of things about what a circle looks like like what those processes look like, is you don't have to be directly across from the person who you hurt. Like, we could be here and here, like the two primary people in the conflict, with a circle of people who care, and it <coughs> acknowledges things like the various dynamics that feed into it, and makes it less oppositional. Like, I've almost never had in mediations, people have like, breakthrough and cry and all that sort of stuff if they're sitting directly across from each other. And if they're here and here, It'll happen all the time. Because um, there's something that if someone's across from you, you're like, you're my opponent. I'm on this side. And they're like, it doesn't make sense to be on this side of the circle. Um, also, not having anything in between is important. So if we were mediating, this backpack would even move. Just psh, clear the space um, as much as possible. Are there other questions and stuff, man? What do you do about someone who's not invested like, in the circle? Yeah, do you want to give an example? Well, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, in the context of the movement, um, sort of like temporary, like fly-by-nighters or, or, or whatnot, um, who, right, right, so, I mean, they're not invested in the long term, in, in whatever, you know, in whatever dynamic or situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's harder, certainly. I think a lot of those those individuals, you can usually see a pattern of um, a lack of elegance around conflict, 
<laughs> to put it nicely. And so some of that, I think part of the reason oftentimes those people are not deeply connected to a movement um, or are really transient in their involvement has to do with their failure to handle conflict and come through it. So like they're there until something goes wrong and then they're gone. And then they're somewhere else until something goes wrong and then they're gone. And so some of that has to do with creating structures that might actually engage them back in. Um, they probably won't initiate it. They might not initially want it. They might be responsive to it with a strong enough invitation. Um, and that's also another reason that I think particularly people who are organizing together for any amount of time to have just like a quick, yo, if things go awry, could we have some kind of process and will we all come if we invite you? Yeah, sure. Can we all say yes to that? Yes, 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 okay. You know, like five minutes at the jump, I think can save years at the end. Um, I think that's part of it. It's also about people who are skilled in engaging them, you know, and how to have that conversation about why they want to go forward. Um, and then having a process that has some integrity so that they don't feel like they're just being put on trial um, is part of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was thinking like one thing I think I've done at least in one group, grouplet that um, I've had experience with is, is sort of engage those, those people, you know, as opposed to like ignoring them, which is sort of what I guess is, is you know, the, uh, the automatic response, but engage them more, which will either scare them away or pull them, pull them in. Um, yeah. And that's like that same kind of banishment to reintegration thing, right? The, the send them away versus actually hold them close and figure out what's going on. Um, and we do that in really small ways. Like we withdraw, if somebody's saying something or they're talking too much and we want them to stop, a lot of what we do is we withdraw our attention. So we take away eye contact, we take away all sorts of things. If somebody's trying to be heard, they're going to keep talking until they feel like they've made a connection. So instead of talking for another minute, they'll talk for two hours until somebody looks them back in the eye. Yeah. And so some of that is just like really natural human stuff about how we signal it. If you're ever facilitating a large group meeting and someone is talking a lot and you like don't want to just be like, enough, if you walk toward them, like if you maintain eye contact and kind of slowly walk toward them, they'll almost always be silent by the time you're there, which is kind of an amazing don't tell everyone or it'll be ruined um, but it's really interesting and I think that it tell it teaches you something about human nature right it's something about like that need to speak and particularly speaking a confrontational I have to do about a need for recognition or acknowledgement and a need to feel genuinely heard and seen um, and I think we become really desperate in our need for that because we live in this you know like we live in a world where that's constantly denied to us is some acknowledgement that we're human beings with a need or something we're saying or worth being heard. Um, that's, are there other things along those lines? Um, Wait, were you facilitating? Are you moving around usually? I kind of imagine. Sometimes, like if it's a really big group, so you're standing yeah, okay, in the okay. front of it. Yeah. yeah, with small groups, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and then they think you're gonna fight them. Which also sometimes <laughs> shut them up. Um, so that's, I mean, with smaller groups, you need different tactics. But even then, eye contact and body language that's affirming instead of withdrawing really helps. Because if everybody's looking at you, like everyone's looking you in the eyes and everyone's body language is turned toward you, you know how long you're talking. Whereas when they're all like, you're like, well, I might as well talk forever because they're looking over there. So it's like, I might as well just fill this whole space because there ain't nobody else in it. That's, I'm really fascinated with this. This little thing because I'm thinking that usually 
I would do, I do the opposite. I'm like, maybe if I ignore them, they'll yeah, shut up. That's what everyone says. I know this because I talk too much, like way too much. And my partner, if he thinks I'm talking too much, will look away and will sort of be distant. And then I'm like feeling alienated and disconnected and out of connection with the group and with him. And so I will just talk until I feel that, which could be forever. <laughs> and so like I learn it just from observing under what circumstances I can shut up. Um, and I think it holds really true. And it says something too about like why it is we keep going. I agree with you. I, I feel a lot of the times that um, if I'm trying to explain something, I have to rephrase it as many times as I can until I really feel that they understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can go on for a while and I don't know. I guess that scene is somewhat confrontational because I'm trying to get them, they feel that I'm trying to get them to submit and I'm not, I'm just trying to get them to understand what I'm trying to say, but that's kind of misconceptive. Uh, right. And the other thing too is thinking about, I think part of the reason, and I do want to take a little bit of time to describe what a circle process looks like and what you actually do in it. Um, but and is talking to Matthew about this too is that part of, I think what often happens is because we don't know what will happen if things flare up. Like we don't have agreements, we don't know what process is there, we don't know what the result is going to be, we don't say little things. We're like, I'm going to let this hot, because if this pulls up, it's not even worth it, it's not that big a deal. And we do this in our personal relationships all the time, like if we don't have a healthy way of fighting with our partners, we just like do the dishes instead of being like, do the dishes, and we do them and we break a glass and we're like, you know, or like somebody's rude and we're like, it's rude. And then we sort of become rude and don't say anything about it. Partly because we're worried that if we raise it, it's going to be explosive in a way that we feel is dangerous. You know, because we see the danger and we don't see the opportunity. And so we avoid it. And that means when something does come up, it's got the force of like everything that's ever happened ever between the two of you behind it. And so suddenly you're ready to destroy the person in front of you over like leaving the toilet seat up. Or down you know like you're ready to because it has that impact of everything behind it whereas if you have some sense of safety that if things get big we'll be okay then you raise the little things when they happen so what I find is groups that have agreements about how to handle serious conflict tend to actually have less serious conflict partly because there's a comfort in taking risks about addressing things that are smaller that means they don't rise to that level because most serious conflicts it's not actually a specific incident that's totally out of hand. It's usually a combination of incidents that add up to that, like the aggregate that's dangerous. Um, so should we do a really quick just what a circle process is? Mm -hmm. Does that sound right to people? And then we'll, then I'm gonna stop talking. Because um, you're all looking at me. <laughs> um, so circle processes come mostly out of indigenous traditions, a lot in this continent, also a lot in the Maori traditions. Um, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and they're, they typically, people sit in a circle. They're often convened by an elder or somebody with some sense. Um, <coughs> one of the most important and universal features is a talking stick, which is when you have it, you talk, and when you don't have it, you don't talk. Um, to my mind, if you have a group of people together who are in serious conflict, you have one person who is a good listener and not immediately involved in it, and a stick, that you can get through, but that's it. So like all those courts downtown with their fancy stuff, one listener, one stick, and you're arranged in a circle and you'll be all right. Um, there are obviously people who are like, I've been in circles with people who just have that kind of 
like people who are like your elders, you know, like who have that energy and that groundedness and that authority that's not about telling you what to do, but about being what you want to do. And they sit down and you're like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. You know, like who have, and that's powerful. But I've also been in circles that were pretty shabbily facilitated by someone with no real experience <laughs> and really good intent that worked. Um, and so I think some of it is about demystifying the idea of conflict resolution. So all these programs where mediators can get certified kind of pissed me off. Like it's great that mediators can get learned, but that piece of paper, throw it away. Like what does that mean? Okay, you did three days of training, so now you know something a human being doesn't know. Bullshit. Um, and so really thinking about getting over the professionalization of that, over the idea that there are specific people who are the ones who can do it and other people who absolutely can't. Um, if there's one feature a person should have to facilitate, it's being a good listener. That's it. Being a good talker is not helpful. Being really creative can be helpful, but it can also mean somebody will dominate because they'll offer all sorts of solutions. Having someone creative in the circle is great. Um, but the one thing that's, I, to my mind, is non-negotiable as a feature of a facilitator or convener of a circle is that they can listen. Yeah. Is this regardless of the number of people involved in the conflict? I mean, is it recommended to have more than one listener? If you're with yeah, if it's really big, it can be really helpful to have more. Um, you'll often have, sometimes you'll have two circle keepers. Also, it's great, the thing that, so the way a circle works is you sit down, there's an initial round of people just kind of saying how they are. Sometimes they, if for bigger conflicts in communities, they often start with a storytelling round, which is, can be any story that takes a long time. So sometimes in New York, people aren't down to do a storytelling round. But so if you have a conflict with like a kid, for instance, who's you know broken into somebody's house and stolen something in the community, right? Um, that the older people in the circle would be invited to tell a story about when they were that age, you know. And I often with young people, particularly young people who are behaving in like violent criminal ways that everyone's terrified about. Um, ask them to tell a story about themselves or ask everyone in the room to tell a story about themselves five years ago. And what's interesting is that the person who's 14, their story is about someone who's nine. And it really helps you get over this like, he's a super predator, you know? Like he's an evil, because he's like, well, so I was playing in the park with my friend and he had just had his eighth birthday party. And we were in your like, shit, I'm talking to a kid, you know? Um, and it also helps people kind of reflect back to a different point in their lives. So those can be really valuable. Um, that requires people who have an investment in things like storytelling with each other. So people who are real skeptical about things that don't look obviously confrontational sometimes aren't down to tell stories. Hi. Welcome. We have more chairs at Mahal. Um, oh. So in a circle process, someone would convene it, they would have arranged the time with everyone, they would get there early and set up the chairs. Hi. What's your name? Hi. Good to meet you. Danielle. 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 What are your names? Isabel. Hi. Sophie? Welcome. Um, so we're talking about circle processes and how they work. Um, circle processes for conflict. So if I were facilitating, I would gather everybody. I would have talked to each of you beforehand to make sure that you all particularly had equal information about what the process was going to look like 
so that there's not someone who's like, oh, yeah, I know how circles go. And someone who's like, what's this going to be? And are they going to say things? And are they going to attack me? And do I have to answer anything? And, you know, all those worries so that people come to it with equal information and on equal footing, I think is really important. Having an initial go around where people just talk about how they are is important because you hear people who are the, who see each other in conflict who are like, I'm nervous about this or I've been thinking about this all week, or I'm feeling really sad about this, and it humanizes people from the outset. And then some questions just about people's individual experience of what happened. The thing that's fantastic about the talking stick, the talking stick means if you have it, you talk, and if you don't have it, you don't talk. So it's simple. And it can be an object that's of importance to the community if you have that. So in indigenous traditions, it's often something with some sacred value. Um, I've done it with like a marker. Um, which is become starts to feel sacred by the end. You're like, oh, the marker. Um, what's exciting? People always, I think, recognize that it keeps people from interrupting each other. You know, and it, and that's useful. The thing that I think is most useful about it is it introduces the possibility of silence to the group. So I can, you can pass it if it comes to you. You could pass it every time, so you never have to answer anything. Um, it always goes in the circle and never ever skips anyone. So. In order for Matthew and I to have a back and forth, everybody would have to pass except us over and over. And at least that would take time, right? Even if we did it hot potato style. So it'd be like, do, 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 do. and then he'd be like, no, you didn't. And it'd be like, do, do, do. yes, you did. And it's, it begins to be ridiculous. Um, so you, you cut down on the back and forth. It's really powerful in terms of evening out voices, partly because people who might not otherwise speak always get an opportunity that is theirs if they want to take it. And people who tend to dominate, if you say something that I have a brilliant response to, by the time it's gone through all these people, chances are everything I wanted to say has been said. And so that does two things. One is it quiets dominating people, because by the time it gets to me, there's not a lot left that I need to say about it. And that frees me up from needing to say all of it. But also for people who are feeling vulnerable in, a group, vulnerable in a group, it makes them feel really supported. So if, say I feel like every time something sexist happens, I have to call it out. You know, so like, you make a sexist comment, and I'm like, and I'm waiting for my turn in the circle, and I know, again, for the millionth time, I'm going to have to be the one who's like, you can't say, and I'm exhausted by that, and I'm disappointed in my community. And when it goes around, someone will probably say it other than me. And so for me, it creates a real strong sense of being supported in ways that I don't visibly see if I'm always the first to respond. You know, like I don't feel it because I'm the first one to be like, that's not, <coughs> not okay. And if I hear that 10 times, I'm like, oh, I'm in a community of people who recognize it and who call it out and who have my back. And so what I think is elegant about circle processes is in a lot of other ways, how you handle someone who's dominant and how you handle somebody who's feeling disempowered seem like they would require different responses. And what's elegant about it is that you do the same thing for everyone and it works because it's equalizing. Um, and so it brings everybody to a common place so it quiets the loud people and it gives strength to the quiet people and makes people feel some unity. Yeah. Um, can I just ask about the size of groups mm -hmm. that you're talking about and then, I mean, if that's sort of like if you have in mind with the Mm -hmm. Circle processes you've had experience yeah. with, in, in theory, um, uh, but then also the the role that size plays in getting to a certain level, and I mean even extrapolating all the way to you know, society. Yeah. Sort of yeah. how 
I don't know, just with, with what you're talking about, if you could just sort of talk from with there. Kind of scale in mind. Yeah, one of the things, I want to say one more thing about silence, and then we'll talk, <laughs> talk more about silence. And then we'll talk about that. Um, what's exciting about the talking stick is sometimes you get it, and you can just hold it for a minute, and then pass it. And so it means that you can, anyone, so I always encourage people to hold back in talking and to be really greedy with silence. Um, and so I've been in circles where people get it and they just keep us quiet for a minute. And you can have time limits for how long people can have the stick. That's sometimes practical in big groups um, or medium-sized groups. Um, but it means people can really introduce a pause into it. It also means I can get the stick and I've been feeling overwhelmed and I can hold it for 30 seconds before I decide what I want to say. So I can actually think about what I want to say and I can collect myself and I can focus. And when I'm done talking, I can hold it again to decide whether I'm really done. You know, it's like, am I done talking? And I might remember something else I need to say and say it. Or I might be like, okay, I'm actually done. In ways, if someone else had talked right after me, even if I were done, I wouldn't have known. Because I would have felt like I finished and then boom, someone else was like, what the fuck? Right? And so I don't even know whether I was done. And I definitely didn't feel like I could pause before I answered if I don't have the stick. So I, I mean, it's called the talking stick. I like to think of it as the silence stick because um, that's, I believe, what it accomplishes much more. In terms of size, I've used talking sticks in groups as small as two people, which seems a little ridiculous because it seems like an agreement not to interrupt each other would be the same, right? If you're talking about two people and you're passing it back and forth. But in terms of creating those pauses, it's not at all the same. So like I'll talk and I might hold it for a second before handing it to the other person. And they might wait before they talk because generally the cue in conversation is if there's silence, it's your turn. But that means that people talk longer than they mean to or sooner than they mean to or not when they mean to. And so I think it starts being useful. I mean, it doesn't make as much sense for one person. Um, <laughs> once you get to two people, it makes sense to use it. I've been involved in circles ranging from two people to 150. Um, so there's obviously different strategies. Um, for the, the general arc of a circle is you go first in terms of understanding everyone's experience of what happened and then understanding people's investment in the outcome and then thinking creatively about how some of that harm came about, then thinking some about what might repair it, so what people's needs are and then thinking about how to implement it. So those are the sort of rounds that you go through. And what's important about that is it's not just the person who did wrong who's making a commitment. So it may be that I'm like, okay, my commitment is to fix the window I broke in your house. And someone else is like, okay, well, I know she's not comfortable being around you right now, so my commitment will be to unlock the house and let you in and be there while you're there. You know, And it may also be that the person who is the victim makes a number of commitments to the process. So it's something where the the accountability for it, even if it's centered in one person, the responsibility going forward is distributed much more evenly around the community. Um, in the really, really big circles, it's helpful, I think, to have inner and outer circles. Um, so that means those can vary. So I've been in ones where those rotated regularly. I've been in ones where it always went around, it would go around the small circle a few times before it would go to the big circle at all, the talking stick. Um, I've been in one where it just went all the way around the room, which made you want to die, because um, it was way too long. Um, it works really well if you have kind of spokespeople. So if you can identify what some of the primary concerns are, or some of the primary concerned communities, and have them 
send a representative to the inner circle, which they can rotate out. So in one of the more effective ones I was in, there was um, somebody in the neighborhood who had molested a young girl, and people were really upset about it. So there were 150 of us there. And we had identified some of the common interests. So there were like a bunch of mothers of young people in the neighborhood who would identify one of themselves to sit in the inner circle and could rotate that out anytime. You know, and then there were people who had really strong concerns about the way we demonize particular sexual behaviors. And they kind of had a sense of how the process had gone and how it had been dangerous to them, even though they didn't practice, you know, they didn't commit the same harm. And they would send a representative. So that can be community groups, so it can be organizations if you're doing something in a coalition, <coughs> but it can also be representatives of different interests. And then, and that's a lot like in consensus when they talk about a fishbowl where you put two people in the middle who represent things and they duke it out. I haven't seen that used super effectively in consensus processes, but I have seen it effectively in conflict ones, so kind of concentric styles. I think it's hard to hear everyone when you get above 15 or 20 people. That's when it starts to get challenging. 30, I've seen circles of 30 that are pretty good, and then it also just relates to how long it's gonna take, because it takes more time. It doesn't add, yeah, go ahead. I, ju I just, uh, in response to what you said, I just feel like methods of control is much deeper than uh, to be counteracted by this circle. The problem is methods and methods of control that we are living in society. People uh, usually feel so alienated to the point that they don't want to get into country. Mm -hmm. And when you have some uh, small group or uh, people who are very committed mm -hmm. to uh, social issues mm -hmm. and they are doing great job, those people uh, like ex uh, gain a kind of position that makes them credible in most of the cases. And here you get to the point that sometimes when you want to criticize or, or have difference with this hidden nucleus or undeclared nucleus because always in any kind of war there is different levels of activities. When you want to criticize this undeclared nucleus you feel alienated and you feel sometimes embarrassed to, to be alone and to, to be out of the, out of the other uh, out of the other people, you know. Yeah. So it is. It is the main the main the main rejection here, or the main point which I want to stress, focus on this idea of not declaring that there is different level of activities and there is kind of leadership to identify and to be able to question it mm -hmm. in the sense that. We will not get embarrassed if we question our, uh, if we question Nina yeah. about something. Yeah. I will not feel lonely and I will not feel isolated if mm -hmm. I. And that is how psychologically it um, through different experiences, I observed this kind of of uh, embarrassment that the people come out of the meeting and say we didn't want to talk. Mm -hmm. If you are very close to them, because we don't want to get into conflict. Right. It is the point that we we don't. We don't set up mm -hmm. the, the culture of conflict. Conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. The way by which you practice conflict is a more important. Mm -hmm. But conflict in itself is very healthy. So that's a lot of, I mean, we've talked about some of that um, in the first hour. So about approaching conflict as an opportunity. We've also talked some about 
how to go about convening the circles so people do come to the table and about prior agreements that make it more likely that whatever somebody's relative power structure, relative position is in any power structure that they're likely to come. Um, so I'm going to not address some of it just because we've spoken about it and I don't want to repeat too much for people who are in the room, but I think it's a really, one of the things about that that I think is a really important observation is recognizing that no amount of process can completely level our our various hierarchies and ranks over one another, you know, and to be honest about that. And having a pre-existing agreement about a conflict resolution process is really powerful in that it allows anybody, regardless of their position of power, to initiate it. So if everyone has said, yeah, anyone who asked me to be in a circle, I'll go. It means even the person who's in a relative position of power has made that agreement equally to anybody else, so they're more likely to actually engage. And then the other part of that is, is in a process like this, being able to level some of the things in terms of when people can contribute and what their expectations are. So you don't have a clear kind of complainant and respondent. You know, like I'm raising a concern and you're answering the concern. Because what it is is there's something that is of concern to the community and you just throw it in the middle. You know, and what happens is then I think people's positions become a lot less polarized. And that's some of what happens if you sit in a circle instead of across a table, um, is that you recognize that usually you're not actually directly opposed to someone, usually you're at like this angle. You know, like this is usually where a conflict is. It's not immediate that you're complete opposition, but that something is off. And so I think one of the aims of that circle is physically to represent some of that, to like to represent the different types of opposition we have. And recognizing even the person by your side, you've got a little, you know, a little angle. Like there's something that's different about the two of you. Um, are there other things people want to raise at this stage? Maybe. Um, so it's 1235. Um, so one of the things I wanted, there, there are two more things I'd like to do in our remaining maybe 10 minutes. And one is to just kind of have people brainstorm about different strategies to approach conflict. And I talked about one, which is these circles. But I also think things like eating food together belong on that list. Like we talked about giving eye contact as something that might be a way of diffusing tensions. Are there other things, like what other kinds of things do people do? It's a, an extreme um, and bizarre uh, version, but it sort of came to mind. I've actually been in communities where engaging in violence, but completely consensual, right? Um, is actually one of the most healthiest things, I mean, in, in the context, in the bizarre context, um, that could possibly happen. And I've seen it a number of times, and it almost, you know, invariably um, results in, like, this total, after, like, two weeks, you know, this total, like, you know, like, peace between those two parties. But there's always, you know, it, it always has to take place with, within, like, a larger circle, you know, everything's safe, you know. It's, it's um, you know, the community sort of approves of it, you know, and, um, yeah, right. It's, it's an amazing expression, yeah. you know, yeah. you're getting it all out, you know, and it's, it's right there and physical, vulgar, you know. And I think there's two things about that that are really interesting. Obvious, I think the reasons one would have reservations about making that one of your standard methods are obvious. Um, but the reasons it's interesting, one is like, if you look at little boys, look, young boys will box each other in the face 
and the next day be chilling all the time, right? And like one of the things that's interesting to me in watching children is being like, what do we do about conflict before we're taught what to do about conflict? You know, like how do we just kind of handle this naturally? And so it is really interesting to think about. It's interesting to think about things that happen, like not immediately judging violence that is agreed upon as the two parties as a way of resolving something is necessarily being off the list. Having mechanisms by which people can consent to that and can actually not consent and still be safe, um, so they can say no and not be fought, is really important. The other thing about that that I think is so important and overlooked is recognizing that we have like bodies, all of us, and that that's part of how we experience conflict. So it's part of how we experience fear, it's part of how we experience danger. One of the things that I do, like if you're angry or close to somebody, you cross your arms and you slouch and you sit like this and your shoulders come in, like that's what you do. And so I have a rule for myself if I know I'm getting really closed off to somebody. I would love to have a rule which is that like I promise to open my mind. Good luck. You know, like in times of really intense conflict, it's hard to forcibly open your mind and heart. What I can do is forcibly open my posture. So if I'm furious at somebody, and I hate what they're saying to me, and it's making me insane, I will uncross my arms. And that I can just like make, that's a muscular thing. Like I can make myself do And sometimes it feels like you're like pushing a door open. It's so hard because your arms so much want to cross. And so thinking instead about like, we know body <coughs> language reflects how we feel, but it also works in the opposite. Like if we change our body language, it impacts how we feel. And so one of the things to do in conflict is to do things like open your frame. Like shoulders back, arms open. You don't always have to spread your legs to a group, but sometimes it helps. You know, like really just boom. And that's part of what that whole when people are like take a deep breath and people are like, yeah, it's some bullshit. And you're like, what it's actually about is like letting your body teach your mind instead of always the other way around. And so I think one of the lessons in some of that about the physicality of it is just realizing that we have bodies and that those mean something. And that's part of why circles, it matters that they're in circles and it matters there's not stuff in the middle of the room and it matters how people sit in them. Um, Cause that's a huge part about how we experience it. I was in one circle once that where one of the people involved was deaf and the other people involved didn't know sign language and we didn't have an interpreter. <laughs> because our interpreter didn't show. Um, like we had arranged one and they just didn't show up. And I was like, this is gonna be fun and I don't really know sign language. We did the entire circle in silence. And people only did things with their bodies. And so people would be like, and pass it. And then would be like, and sometimes people would kind of invent their own sign language and be like, ooh, I'm opening my heart or whatever it is. But we did maybe a two hour circle process with not a sound. And if you watched it, like you could, I, if you watch a video of a circle process and turn the volume off, it's, to me doing that has been one of the most instructional things ever. Because you can tell what's happening in the circle without hearing a single word. You can see everything that's going on. And you're like, I can tell you the whole arc of what happened. I can't tell you exactly what the agreements are, but I can tell you everything just by watching people's bodies. Um, and so I think that that's part of what some of why we react violently is about a way of reintroducing our physical selves into moments of conflict and figuring out how to be physically present. If we can figure out how to be physically present without having to box someone in the face, I find it preferable. Um, 
but it's but that I think is a really necessary part of it. I feel like sure. there's so much like natural human like human conflict. Like people would be so afraid for of different types of communication or even like any at all. Like if you have say a row of seats and someone's sitting in a seat or whatever, you're not gonna sit next to that person. You're gonna put a seat in between you. And if you do sit next to them, be like, why are you sitting so close to me? And there's so much like tension between humans and should you decide to introduce a different form of communication such as a circle, whatever would be like, you know. People are so, how do things do it? People in the circle are more likely to sit next to an occupied chair than if it's in rows. Mm -hmm. Much more. Like if you just watch the way people come into a room where chairs are set up in a circle, they're far more likely to sit next to somebody. Because they're open to this kind of communication, whereas like natural lab and like you know you want that distance between each other. And because some, there's something where you feel weird <laughs> putting a seat between you and someone in a circle. Yeah. You feel like you're all like. Kind of defeats the point. I don't want to sit next to you. Even if it's not a conflict, even if it's just like a room like this, you feel kind of silly not sitting next to somebody. Like you're aware that that's isolating. Mm -hmm. um, and so I mean, to me, that's part of what's so cool about these processes is you can get really advanced and incredibly skilled at them, no doubt, but also really if you have people cross-legged in a circle, somebody who's not wiling out and a stick, you can get through. <coughs> um, and that, to my mind, much more than any of like the complex strategies of different things you can do at a time is really, really important. Other things we talked about is physically moving stuff. So I, one theory is that the space should be set up before people come in. I really like for people to set up the space together because then they've done something cooperative, they've accomplished something together, they've already made a contribution to the shared space, the circle is theirs because it wasn't there and then they made it, so they created the circle, and all they've done is like move a table out of the way and move some chairs around. Um, and then they don't feel like the circle's imposed on them, so they're not like, circle. I don't want to sit in the circle with you. Why are we sitting like this? Because they set it up. Mm -hmm. um, having food is really good. One of the ground rules I like to commit to all the time is if anybody has to pee, they should be able to call a timeout and go pee. As a facilitator, having potty breaks can be the most important thing you ever do. Because I know when I have to pee, first of all, I think everyone's talking too long. Because I'm like, if they would shut up, I could do So everybody, I'm like, oh, you're still talking. Even if it's like, they're like, hi, I'm Hua. I'm like, why are you introducing yourself so slowly? <laughs> you know, and so like thinking about things like that, thinking about people's physical comfort. So having pillows for people who want support behind their back so that they can physically sit comfortably in a chair for as long as you're sitting there. Um, that kind of stuff really matters. What are the other kinds of things that you do to, to come through conflict? Okay, that's useful. Um, I think when we were talking about a mutual, uh, like a mutual character, mm -hmm. I never really adapt to the theory only because a lot of the time, should I, it's like, I don't want part of your job. I don't mm -hmm. want to be involved or whatever. So I do often kind of take it upon myself to approach them. And if they don't want to talk to me, I mean, I will be persistent about it. Be like, you know, you, I mean, this is a conflict between both of us. I'm willing to talk to you. I think that you, I don't want to say you owe it to me to talk to me, but I think that it would be a good idea that you do because this is both you and I. So, and then a lot of times, I mean, I have temporarily lost friendships and then I'd run into them and I'd be like, you know, hey, and I'd give them a hug and then we'd start talking because then that opened it up because it's like showing you I'm willing to talk. I'm willing to like physically like hug you and say I'm okay with you. So. 
And one of the things that's in both of your examples, which is just like having some time, right? Going through a resolution process and then being like, maybe it'll be two weeks before I feel good. Okay. Yeah. You know, so sometimes people come out of circles and they're loving each other and they're fine and they're best friends and they want to go have a meal together. Sometimes they come out of circles and they're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Um, I think outlets for people's anger are really important too. I was in a circle once and this girl, we hadn't set time limits. We didn't make agreements about people saying I statements, like meaning only speaking for themselves, which are usually good agreements, as I remember partway through this. And it got to her and she was like, I just want to say, fuck all y'all. <laughs> you, you're a little tramp and you know it. You, you're full of shit. And she went for maybe five minutes, which is a long time to be screaming and swearing at everyone in the room in turn. She didn't skip anyone in the room. <laughs> she said then she would go back to some people. She swore at me like you wouldn't believe the things she said to me. Um, some ugly, ugliness. And then she was like, <sighs> and then sat there with the stick for like another three minutes and then passed it on. And when it came to her the next time, she was like, no, I could do all that, that sounds fair. <laughs> just ready to roll. You know, and there's something about being able, if that had happened somewhere other than in a circle, it would have felt really unsafe. And no one would have let her just finish. You know, people would have been, did you just say to me? Would have been two seconds into it. Um, and you have to have a certain level of trust to be able to know that you can do that without people in the room feeling harmed or threatened. But like, and if she had said, I'm gonna do whatever to you afterwards, I would have been like, mm, stop. But until then, as long as she was just saying, like, fuck you, you stupid white bitch to me, I was like, okay, that's cool, that's cool. <laughs> Bring it. I feel, yeah. I feel like you're describing the psychological impact of conflict among very closely connected people. Mm -hmm. And just from this point, I feel like this is kind of reducing the issue because conflict also. <laughs> And when you went to political differences sometimes, mm -hmm. to the point that you have to be clearly yeah. disconnected yourself or putting distance or stuff like that, here you cannot rely on, on such physiological or body language stuff to resolve yeah. such a deep issue. Sure. And I, I, that is why I'm bringing this point, because also here, Lara, Lara talks about this psychological stuff body language as if it is this is the whole issue yeah there's no way it's the whole issue i agree i've definitely mediated conflicts like i've mediated something as serious as an attempted murder between strangers so the person who attempted to kill somebody and the person who was almost killed by someone they had never met so they certainly weren't in close community you know like it happened in the course of a robbery it was a 16 year old boy and a 35 year old woman who had never met before um, and we came through it. And so I think one way to think about it is to think that we need a certain amount of community in order to resolve conflict properly and well together. I think the other way to think about it is that the only way we'll ever have that amount of community is if we resolve conflict well together. You know, so to think about the causality being more complicated, and it's not that it just goes this way either, but that there's, there's a relationship that's that's not just unidirectional. But community itself is a very problematic concept. Mm -hmm. Because you know, inside community, you find a lot of, a lot of religions. Sure. Like inside, for example, what is community? Arab community, this is community. Mm -hmm. Cab driver is community. Sure. Black people is community. Yeah. American people are community. Right. So you find communities very broad, very broad 
and lose concept. Mm -hmm. And when you try to, to identify yourself sometimes within a specific community, you find a lot of divisions mm -hmm. no because doubt. of benefits yeah. inside this community. Oh, no doubt. You cannot get, get, get close to somebody. Yeah. I mean, I definitely sat there with a woman who had been shot at by somebody who robbed her, who she had never met before, and they came through. And so I, the word community may not be the one that people are most comfortable with. It may be connection. It may be some understanding of relation, like having a relationship with somebody else, whatever its charges. You know, and community doesn't necessarily mean that you love one another or that you have shared commitments. It may mean that you share an identity, you share a neighborhood, you share a particular interest in a subject, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, um, me and my boss, I want to break up, uh, for example, if we are from the same culture, I want to break up the connection rather than mm -hmm. getting in connected with, right. with him, right? Right. What, what, I, what I have in common with my boss. Yeah. So robbing me and robbing like for other 400 right. uh, people. Right. So are we, are we human? Yeah, we speak so, the same language, but... So I'm going to answer that and then I'm going to suggest that we go around in a circle so that everybody else also has a chance to to talk. Um, and I think some of that, it's one thing that is really important in that, in addressing conflicts, is having some sense about whether your goal is to maintain that relationship or to sever that relationship safely. And you may figure that out in the course of it. You may think your goal is to sever it and decide in the course of it that you want to sustain it. And it may be that you go in thinking you want to work it out and you realize what you need to do is sever it. And so what it is, is about coming through harm in a way that doesn't create more harm. You know, and so that may mean, it may mean a break between people. It may be that the resolution of something is that people are no longer, that they choose to sever a connection. And that's realistic. Um, so I want to just, bef before we go, um, if, you, if we maybe do a go around in a circle, um, and if there are questions that are remaining or any observations or even just like really basic concrete questions too, like, you know, do you have food before or after the circle? And do you have water at the circle? And are animals allowed? And how do you handle childcare at a circle? Like those kinds of things, as well as anything else um, that you want Talk about so maybe we'll go this way. Um, or does someone want to start us off? Mm -hmm. um, I actually want to try to see real quick. Um, well, actually, it's really just two concepts basically. Um, the idea of the is just one is one thing that I'm sort of trying to get my head around. Mm -hmm. The other idea is 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 um, when, quite frankly, one of the parties is so unassailably obstinate that they will not, you know, that they will not participate in the process, yeah. or, or that you cannot reach an agreement yeah. with them. Um. So it's fine. Those are different things. Not participating and not agreeing, and are different levels of concern. Um, transformative mediation, as opposed to regular mediation. It focuses on recognition between people and empowerment of people as opposed to getting a solution to the problem. So they'll regard a mediation as success, more successful if people have like really acknowledged their differences and really understood each other and been like, yeah, we can't actually figure out how to agree. As opposed to mediation where there's an agreement but there's still no mutual recognition and no sense of empowerment on the part of the parties. And so not ending with an agreement is okay. 
Sometimes it'll happen. Well, I, I, um, I'm actually more talking about the agreement of the process before oh, you even get started. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's part, the difficulty of that, which is real, is part of why having the prior agreement is so important because people are more likely to agree to that when they don't imagine it's going to be themselves or mm -hmm. from a space of connection and openness to things than in the moment of conflict. Um, otherwise, it's really helpful to figure out who should be engaging them and how. You know, so to think about who should be approaching them, on what grounds they should be asked to be there, um, to make clear that everybody in the room is has some accountability in the issue and everybody in the room will be held responsible for moving forward in some way. Um, so I've rarely been in a circle where there have been people who haven't been responsible for something as an outcome of it. Um, even if it's, oh, I'm gonna remind you to go. Um, so I had a circle where someone agreed to go to a program and the person he had hurt agreed to call him every morning to remind him to go, you know? Um, and so I think also giving concrete examples of things that have happened before about what the process will look like, because a lot of it is about a mystery about the process too. So it's about just saying, this is what we would do if we did it. What aspects of that don't you like? What parts of that don't seem cool? What might change that for you? Um, so engaging them in setting the ground rules for it is, I think, and being flexible. Sure. And we should go soon so people don't miss the one o'clock one that may be miles away. Yeah. Um, are there any other closing comments or observations or something? Um, I think the food's really good. Maybe if you could like get the people together to make the food or to set the table or, you know what I mean? Um, so you have to work together to have the that going. And it's cool to like to, if you can cook a meal together afterwards, it's awesome. Um, I, I, I think honestly there's a point of rotation possibility. Sometimes this is absent, like rotation of responsibility in the sense that people who do child care today will do media tomorrow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really I think it's really important to think that that also fosters an ability to empathize better with one another because you've all held each other's positions. Are there for those who haven't said anything at the end, is there anything you wanna add or say? Thanks for your Thank Being you. here. Awesome. That was great. Sorry. Awesome. You had to talk less. But that was great anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was hard. Can I write down the name of that book?